sunshine comes from the east till the light of the dark is coming. We are all open our eyes, we are all open our heart, we are all open our mind under the same sky. Not only one in blood and land, not only one on skin color and language. We have one spirit, we are one in struggle. Good afternoon everyone, my name is Isabel Vera Cruz of Esme Philippines and I will be your host for today's webinar. But before we begin, if any of you have questions regarding our discussion, don't hesitate to send them to us by entering it in the comment section of whatever social media platform you're watching this on and I'll be here to relay them to our guest speaker. Welcome to the Philippines' first NDC to the Paris Climate Agreement, a free webinar brought to you by ESME.ph, an e-learning marketplace for Filipino professionals where one can develop relevant and in-demand skills through master classes in different fields of learning. To learn more about us, feel free to visit our page at www.esme.ph. And for those who are watching on Facebook, YouTube, or LinkedIn, feel free to share the link to the stream to people who you think will be interested in today's topic. So, this webinar is in partnership with the ASEAN Youth Organization, an ASEAN-approved nonprofit organization that spreads awareness of ASEAN to over 200 million young people in the Southeast Asia. First of all, we are very delighted to have you guys here today. We hope that you are all hydrated despite the heat because this conversation is literally a hot topic. The Earth's global average temperature has increased drastically over the years due to our emissions of greenhouse gases. Alarmed, through world leaders provided plans to address this issue through the adoption of 2015 Paris Agreement. Of course, being one of the hottest countries in the Philippines, the Philippines abides to this agreement, completing its first nationally 
determined contribution NDC. And mind you, the NDC is very, very crucial as it determines targets and plans under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change to aid global climate action. So, our speaker for today was a former climate finance consultant who worked on the Philippines Readiness Program for implementing the Green Climate Fund, the world's largest financing window for helping developing countries boost their climate change interventions. She also worked for the Philippines National Economic and Development Authority, a government agency responsible for economic development and planning. Currently, she is the Secretariat Coordinator of the Partnerships in Environmental Management of the Seas of East Asia, an intergovernmental organization working on the su sustainable development of the seas of East Asia and surrounding region. She's with us today to talk about the challenges and recommendations on implementing the NDC based on the Philippines' status on climate change investment. We're here to find out what our next steps will be in saving our only home. Ladies and gentlemen, time to send your warm Facebook card your acts to Miss for Miss Karen C. Thanks, Isa, for the introduction. I would also like to take this opportunity to thank Esme Philippines again for the invitation to talk in today's webinar. Shout out too to our other partners for this event, the ASEAN Youth Organization, the ASEAN Youth Journal, Rotaract One ASEAN, Rotary and Rotaract Clubs of Alabang Madrigal Business Park and Rotary District 3830. For those of you who may have been following us in this Youth Talk series, you have at your disposal a number of webinars dealing on climate change. Last week on the 23rd of May, we had the opportunity to hear about an overview of climate change, the science behind it, the sources of greenhouse gas, or as we call it, GHG emissions at the global level, the vulnerability of the Philippines to climate change, the projections on the climate change impacts on the country, and the role of technology in mitigating and adapting to climate change. Today, for this webinar, I'll be sharing with you my perspective as a former climate finance consultant on the Philippines' first NDC to the Paris Agreement, uh, specifically what this means for the country and how we can move forward in light of the challenges and gaps. First, I'd like to present my outline for this webinar, just so everyone is contextualized on what I'll be presenting. First, I'll give an overview of the UNFCCC, what the climate negotiations have been like in the past decades, and how it led to the Paris Agreement. Then I'll proceed to the key aspects of the agreement before going to the Philippine NDC. Uh, I'll give an overview and also deconstruct the Philippine commitments as laid out in the Philippine NDC. Then I will proceed with the climate finance landscape in the Philippines, an overview before going to the challenges and recommendations. So for the first part, on the UNFCCC and Paris Climate Agreement, as some of you may already know, in December 1990, the United Nations General Assembly launched negotiations on what would be called the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change an international environmental treaty that aims to stabilize GHG emissions to avoid dangerous human disruptions in the climate system. The treaty was eventually finalized and adopted in 1992. Upon ratification, the UFCCC committed its members to take steps to mitigate global greenhouse gas emissions. To date, we have 197 parties or members under this convention, which includes the European Union or the EU and 196 states. Now, just to give some context before I proceed to the Paris Climate Agreement, I would like to go over the history or at least the key milestones on what happened in the climate negotiations in the past decades. So first we begin with the 1995 first meeting of the UNFCCC signatories. This happened in Berlin, the United States pushed back against legally binding targets and timetables, but then it joined other parties in agreeing to negotiations to strengthen commitments on limiting greenhouse gases. The concluding document, known as the Berlin Mandate, lays the groundwork for what becomes the Kyoto Protocol, 
but is criticized by environmental activists as a political solution that does not prompt immediate action at all. Then we have in 1996, the first legally binding climate treaty. This is the third conference of parties under the convention. The conference adopts the Kyoto Protocol. The legally binding treaty requires developed countries to reduce emissions by an average of 5% below 1990 levels and establishes a system to monitor countries' progress. But the protocol does not compel developing countries, including high carbon emitters such as China and India, to take action. It also creates a carbon market for countries to trade emission units and encourage sustainable development, a system that we know known today as cap and trade. Countries must now work out the details of implementing and ratifying the protocol. In 2001, we had a breakthrough in Bonn, but without the US. What happened was the Kyoto Protocol is in jeopardy after talks collapse in November 2000 and the United States withdraws in March of, that, uh, of the following year, with Washington saying that the protocol is not in the country's economic best interest. In July 2001, negotiators in Bonn reached breakthroughs on great green technology, agreements on emissions trading, and compromises on how to account for carbon sinks, such as forests, etc. In October, countries finally agree on the rules for meeting targets set by the Kyoto Protocol, paving the way for its entry into force. Next up, in 2005, the Kyoto Protocol finally takes effect. It enters into force in February after it was ratified by enough countries to account for at least 55% of global emissions. Notably, however, it does not include the United States, the world's leading carbon emitter. Between 2008 and 2012, when the protocol is set to expire, countries are supposed to reduce emissions by their pledge amounts. The EU commits to reduce emissions by 8% below 1990 levels, Japan commits to 5%, and Russia commits to keeping levels steady with 1990 levels. Next up, in 2009, we have two key events. First up in, first up in September, we have the U.S. joining bold statements at the U.N. Three months ahead of the target for a new agreement, several world leaders pledged actions during a U.N. summit on climate change, hosted by the Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. Chinese President Hu Jintao announces a plan to cut emissions by a notable margin by 2020, marking the first time that Beijing commits to reducing its rate of greenhouse gas emissions. Japanese Prime Minister Tikiyo Hatoyama pledges to reduce emissions by 25%. Meanwhile, U.S. President Barack Obama, in his first U.N. address, said that the United States is determined to act and lead, but then he didn't offer any new proposals. Ban expressed hope that leaders will eventually reach a substantive deal during the upcoming conference in Copenhagen. However, later that year, in December, the successor to the Kyoto Protocol is supposed to be finalized in Copenhagen, but the parties only came up with a non-binding document that is taken note of but not adopted. This Copenhagen Accord acknowledges that global temperatures should not increase by 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, although representatives from developing countries sought a target of 1.5 degrees Celsius. A 2009 report from the American Meteorological Society predicts a 3.5 degrees Celsius to 7.4 degrees Celsius increase in less than 100 years. After leading the negotiations, U.S. President Obama tells the conference that the accord is not enough. Some countries later vowed to follow the accord, although it remains non-binding, and make their own pledges. In 2010, finally we had temperature targets set. There was increased pressure to reach a consensus in Mexico during the 16th Conference of Parties under the convention, after the failure in Copenhagen, and also following NASA's announcement that 2000 to 2009 was the warmest decade ever recorded. Countries commit for the first time to keep global temperature increases below two degrees Celsius in the Cancun agreements. Approximately 80 countries, including China, India, and the US, as well as the EU, submit emissions reduction targets and actions. 
and they also agree on stronger mechanisms for monitoring progress. But then analysts says it's not enough to stay below the two degrees Celsius target. The Green Climate Fund or the GCF, a hundred billion fund to assist developing countries in mitigating and adapting to climate change was established in this year. As of 2019, however, only around $3 billion has been contributed. In 2011, we had a new accord to apply to all countries. The conference in Durban, South Africa, nearly collapses after the world's three biggest polluters, China, India, and the U.S., reject an accord proposed by the EU. But they eventually agreed to work towards drafting a new legally binding agreement in 2015 the Paris Agreement at the latest. The new agreement will differ from the Kyoto Protocol in that it will apply to both developed and developing countries. With the Kyoto Protocol set to expire in a few months at that time, the parties agreed to extend the Kyoto Protocol until 2017. In 2012, negotiators in the Doha Conference extended the Kyoto Protocol until 2020 but remaining participants accounted for just 15% of global greenhouse gas emissions. By this time, Canada has withdrawn from the treaty, and Japan and Russia say they will not accept new commitments. And the United States never signed on. Environmental groups criticize countries for not reaching an effective agreement as Typhoon Pablo slams the Philippines, which they say exemplifies a rise in extreme weather caused by climate change. One of the conference's successes is the Doha Amendment, under which developed countries agree to assist developing countries mitigate and adapt to the effects of climate change. The agreement also sets delegates on the path towards a new treaty. We then come to 2013, where there was a walkout in Warsaw. During the first week of the 19th Conference of Parties in Warsaw, Poland, a group of developing countries known as the Group of 77 or G77 as we call it, and China proposed a new funding mechanism to help vulnerable countries deal with loss and damage caused by climate change. Developed countries, however, opposed the mechanism, so the G77's lead negotiators walk out of the conference. Talks eventually did resume, and the government agreed to a mechanism that falls short of what developing countries wanted. Countries also agreed on how to implement an initiative to end deforestation known as Red Plus. But the conference is described by analysts as the least consequential COP in several years. We then come to the landmark Paris Climate Agreement in 2015. 196 countries at that time uh, subscribed to the Paris Agreement. Unlike past agreements, it requires nearly all countries, both developed and developing countries, to set emission reduction goals. It was a landmark success in that countries finally arrived at a common cause to undertake ambitious efforts to, climate, to combat climate change and to adapt to its effects with enhanced support to assist developing countries. Now, let me go over to some key aspects of the Paris Climate Agreement. What makes it different from the other agreements we had? This is not meant to be an exhaustive discussion of the Paris Climate Agreement. This is not, this is not and will not be a line-by-line -line comparison. Here, uh, I'm featuring the key aspects that will only be relevant to this discussion and nothing more. First up is the long-term temperature goal of the agreement. It aims to limit global temperature increase to well below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, while pursuing efforts to limit the increase to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. Then, uh, on the second, the Paris Agreement to achieve this temperature goal uh, indicates that, that parties aim to reach global peaking of GHG emissions as soon as possible, recognizing that GHG peaking will take longer for developing country partners so as to achieve carbon neutrality or zero carbon by the second half of the century. Third, the agreement establishes binding commitments by all parties to prepare, communicate, implement, and maintain their own NDC in order to achieve the said long-term temperature goal. The NDCs form the heart of the agreement as they lay out the climate-related goals of each party to aid the global climate action. It also prescribes that parties shall communicate their NDCs every five years 
and provide information necessary for clarity and transparency. To set a firm foundation for higher ambition, each successive NDC will represent a progression beyond the previous one and reflect the highest possible ambition. We also have provisions on climate change adaptation. The Paris Agreement establishes a global goal on adaptation, on enhancing adaptive capacity, strengthening resilience, and reducing vulnerability to climate change in the context of the temperature goal of the agreement. It aims to significantly strengthen national adaptation efforts and international cooperation on this regard. All parties should engage in adaptation, including by formulating and implementing their own respective national adaptation plans, and should submit and periodically update an adaptation communication describing their priorities, needs, plans, and actions for reference of the UNFCC and by other partners. The Paris Climate Agreement also has a provision on finance, technology, and capacity building support. It reaffirms the obligations of developed countries under this convention to assist developing country partners in their mitigation and adaptation efforts. For the first time, the convention also encourages voluntary contributions from other parties. Now we proceed to the Philippine NDC. Now, as mentioned, uh, the Philippine NDC covers both mitigation and adaptation. The NDC uh, was voted unanimous, uh, rather, sorry, the Paris Climate Agreement was voted unanimously and ratified in 2017, but it was only four years later did we complete our first NDC. Now, one thing to note about the NDC is that the Philippines commits to a projected greenhouse gas emissions reduction and avoidance of 75% for the period 2020 to 2030 for the sectors of agriculture, waste, industry, transport, and energy. Of this figure, 2.71% is unconditional. It means that it can be undertaken using nationally mobilized resources, while the remaining 72.29% is conditional. This commitment is referenced against a projected business as usual or BAU economy-wide emission of 3,340 million metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalent for the same period. Additionally, under the NDC, the benefits of market and non-market mechanisms under Article 6 of the Paris Agreement shall continue to be explored consistent with national circumstances and sustainable development aspirations. Uh, an example of this market-based mechanism is the clean development mechanism that was explained in a previous webinar. And then on the adaptation side, the Paris Climate Agreement states that um, states on uh, the NDC rather states that the Philippines shall undertake adaptation measures across but not limited to the sectors of agriculture, forestry, coastal and marine ecosystems, and biodiversity health and human security to preempt, reduce, and address residual loss and damage. The country shall also endeavor to undertake equitable adaptation strategies with mitigation co-benefits and ensure their contribution to the national pandemic recovery. Now let's deconstruct the NDC. What does this mean for the Philippines? Is it reasonable? Are there any concerns that we need to note off when we do the global stock taking after? Or perhaps when we update the NDC later on? So for my first point, I would like to point out while the 75 target seems to be an ambitious number, what is only committed by the Philippines in terms of emissions reduction comes to less than 3%. This is the unconditional target, making it, as others would call, negligible in terms of contributions to the global climate action. In fact, there are speculations among environmental groups that the NDC in its current low setup might be used as a tool to negotiate access to development finance. On the other hand, on a more positive or realistic note, we do have to understand that it's common for developing countries such as Indonesia Cambodia, and India to have NDCs or INDCs that are partially or wholly conditional on international support, 
similar with the setup in the Philippines. This support uh, includes access to a pledge $100 billion finance a year in terms of climate change adaptation and mitigation efforts, technology transfer, and capacity building. In addition, the Paris Agreement does require each party to revisit and resubmit an updated NDC at regular intervals, at which point the Philippines can make more value-adding targets. However, a study published by Pau et al. points out that the existing 100 billion target pledged by developing countries in assisting developing countries is insufficient to cover the cost of implementing all conditional NDCs, such as the case of the Philippines. For my second point, I would like to make some comparisons between the Philippine intended NDC or what we call the INDC versus the NDC. What is the INDC? The INDC was submitted by the Philippines ahead of the 21st Conference of the Parties in 2015. This is the precursor of our NDC today. The word intended was used because at that time, countries were communicating their proposed climate actions ahead of the finalization of the Paris Agreement. As countries formally joined the agreement, the intended is dropped off and an, and an ID, INDC is converted into an NDC. The conversion from INDC to NDC happens when the country ratifies or completes whatever national legal process is necessary to formalize their adoption of the Paris Agreement. Under the provisions of the Paris Agreement, countries will be expected to submit an updated NDC by 2020 and every five years thereafter. Every update is expected again to show progression in terms of targets and to reflect the highest possible ambition as mentioned earlier. This will be accompanied by a global stock take, what I mentioned before, that will take place in 2023 and every five years thereafter to assess collective progress towards achieving the purpose of the agreement in a comprehensive and facilitative manner. It will be based on the best available science and it will inform parties when they update their actions, including those relevant for international cooperation. Going back to the case of the Philippines, the country is one of three parties of the Paris Agreement, along with Brunei and Ecuador, that requested not to convert their INDCs at the time into NDCs upon ratification. Supposedly, the Philippines should have submitted their NDC by the 2020 set deadline, but it was only recently, this April, that it get finalized and communicated to the convention. Now, what about the INDC? Or more importantly, how does the NDC differ from its predecessor? In the INDC, the Philippines intends to undertake greenhouse gas emissions reduction of about 70% by 2030 relative to its BAU scenario of 2000 to, two, to, 2000 to 2030. Reductions will come from energy, transport, waste, forestry, and industry sectors. The mitigation target is wholly conditional. Now let's break this down. What I gave earlier was just the gist of the INDC. The first subpoint, uh, the INDC, as you may have noticed, did not indicate a specific baseline figure, which we can use to measure against Philippine progress and determine that we have indeed achieved the 70% reduction. It just said emissions reduction of about 70% by 2030 relative to its BAU scenario. For this aspect, the NDC is better as it was able to provide the necessary figure compared to its predecessor. However, we should also note that the Philippine NDC changed its baseline period. Instead of 2000 to 2030, it is now 2020 to 2030, a period of time where annual emissions are possibly already lower than if we use its counterpart from 2000 to 2030, given the presence of climate change mitigation initiatives. What does this, what this does is reduce the marginal contribution of the Philippines to the global climate action. We can think of it this way. Let's have an analogy for easy computation. Let's say a company used to emit two metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalent annually in the past. Now, because they are more environmentally conscious, they only emit one metric ton. If they say they will cut their emissions by 75% and use the current performance as the basis, 
this will only amount to 0.75 metric tons. If they had used their previous performance though, this will be 1.5. As you can see, the marginal contributions are different depending on the baseline use. My second subpoint is that the methodology and major assumptions used in developing the NDC are not indicated. Only in the INDC do we see this kind of information, as you may see in your screen. My third subpoint, and this is something that those who are coming from, from environment-related backgrounds may have already noticed or known, agriculture is not cited as a source of emissions reduction in the INDC. This is different from NDC, where this time, while agriculture is now included, forestry is not, despite being a major sector worldwide affecting emissions level. It goes against the grain that one of the actions needed to control the increase in GHG emissions is the conservation and rehabilitation of forests, given their dual role in climate change. They serve as carbon sinks and reservoirs that can reduce emissions level, and at the same time, a major source of emissions when deforestation and other harmful land use changes occur. This is validated in the Special Report on Climate Change and Land of the Intergovernmental Planet Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC as we call it. In addition, forests have benefits in terms of adaptation. They help provide income, livelihood, and resilience against the impacts of climate change. The Paris Agreement also recognizes the crucial role of forests. My fourth sub-point, as mentioned a while ago, the mitigation target is wholly conditional in the INDC. The contribution is conditioned on the availability of financial resources, including technology development and transfer and capacity building. On this front, the NDC is therefore better. However, be that as it may, in both instruments of the Philippines, the mentioned conditions or need are not well defined. My last subpoint would be my observation that the NDC does not give an overview of the implemented and planned major laws, policies, and initiatives that contributed to the baseline performance or may affect future emissions. Now, how do we fare in terms of climate finance? This is a crucial topic in so far as we need to assess how we're doing in terms of accomplishments, challenges, and ways forward so that we can know where we are in terms of accomplishing the Paris Agreement goals. I think for everyone's benefit, benefit, it's important that I first define what climate finance is. The commonly held view of climate finance is that this is funds specific to climate change, particularly funds that stream from developed to less developed countries, such as those coming from the Global Environment Facility, or the GEF and other related trust funds, such as the Green Climate Fund. However, a considerable portion of government budget, private investments, ODA-funded projects, and CSO initiatives are also open the case climate responsive, although they may or may not address climate change exclusively as an end goal. As such, when we talk about climate finance, this is the broader term, that which is used to fund programs and projects that are climate responsive as a whole or as a component, regardless of source and financing mechanism. Now, opportunities for climate financing have seen tremendous improvement in the Philippines. Currently, we have a multitude of sources with each having a myriad of available intermediaries, financing mechanisms, modes of access, and means for delivery for deploying funds. And again, they don't necessarily have to address climate change only as an end goal. In the interest of time, however, I won't be going over these details, nor the figures and statistics of how much we're spending. Feel free to contact me, though, on LinkedIn for more information on the Philippines' climate finance landscape. What I will focus on in this presentation are the gaps and ways forward in terms of climate finance. So here I'm presenting the examples of major issues and challenges and what the Philippines is doing in this regard, and, or rather, what are the policy recommendations. So first up, we have 
duplication of programs, activities, and projects or paths. This is particularly the case for local level projects. Hence, stakeholders are cautious that any proposed activity may already overlap or duplicate existing efforts. It is suggested that LGUs direct the implementation and funding of the business as usual projects to the appropriate national government agencies to ensure maximum impact. Because as the national government already has its own lineup of programs and projects, and it's possible that the LGUs are already duplicating them. LGUs, in this sense, must focus on paradigm-shifting projects that can help achieve the climate goals under the Paris Agreement. And as much as possible, LGUs are recommended to anchor their proposed climate change programs into existing initiatives to make sure that they are climate responsive. The second challenge is the lack of project preparation and technical support at the local level. For instance, planning adaptation activities at the local level requires a clear understanding of site-specific vulnerabilities. This understanding will be translated to baseline assessments, which will serve as the starting point of your proposals for the likes of the People's Survival Fund, which is a major funding source for the Philippines at the local level to finance climate change adaptation efforts. For this, while having a climate change enhanced comprehensive land use plan and other development plans is not required, it is nevertheless ideal that these documents reveal the gaps in guiding the LGUs on how to proceed with development planning and project preparation for climate change. The third problem is the proliferation of PAPs that are not climate responsive and do not have a targeted approach. What do we mean by this? Based on my observation, various PAPs have been classified as climate change related, but they do not seem to have any explicit features that specifically address climate change adaptation or mitigation. For instance, in the case of uh, farm-to-market roads that have been dubbed as climate responsive, several of these PAPs simply address the need for a more accessible food supply and agricultural value chain when you review the project documents or the accomplishments. It is important that the national government consider the resilience of these structures to climate change to ensure business continuity in times of natural and human-induced disasters and that they reflect the presence or absence thereof accurately in future conducts of, of climate change reviews. This problem is also manifested in other ways. For instance, uh, the nature and design of a proposed project, a program, activity, or project, or as we call it, PAP, can be further enhanced by giving thorough consideration of the available resources, as well as a careful evaluation of the project's geographical context and target recipients that would likely benefit the most from its implementation. This will ensure that the PAP delivers maximum impact in addressing climate change-related issues. Questions arise, for instance, on the flood risk management and resiliency program of the DPWH, or the Department of Public Works and Highways. The program was set to design and construct flood control facilities capable of withstanding disaster events along major river basins. And yet, less than a tenth of these services were found to address major and principal only, only less than a tenth of these services were found to address major and principal basins as of 2016. Similarly, given budget constraints, the agency should revisit progress on the nationwide installation of rainwater collection systems to better reflect a needs-based budget allocation framework in the selection of sites and communities to be prioritized. The next problem is that public spending on disaster management is largely reactive. What do we mean by this? The Commission on Audit reported that the public spending on disaster management is characterized as largely reactive, as shown by the huge balances of calamity funds before the occurrence of disaster and the corresponding increase in expenditures during disaster response. It noted that the national government tends to allocate more funds on disaster response, not on preparedness. 
in this case, uh, such funds should have a semblance of proactivity to ensure that it targets the needs of stakeholders. The next problem is that not all LGUs have mainstreamed climate change mitigation and adaptation into their development plans. As you may know, the local government code mandates each LGU to formulate its own comprehensive land use plan or CLUP and comprehensive development plan. With a minimum time frame of 10 years, the CLUP shall guide the physical development of the LGU's territorial jurisdiction, both land and water, specifically the spatial requirements and sustainability of management of the activities by various development sectors. Pursuant to this, the CDP, on the other hand, as a medium-term instrument, shall lay out the development agenda and consolidate the different paths necessary to pursue the goals of the sectors on social, economic, environment, physical, infrastructure, institutional, with a minimum duration of three years to fit the time frame of each electoral cycle in cities and municipalities. However, several LGUs have yet to integrate climate change adaptation or mitigation measures in their respective development plans. Reasons commonly cited include the lack of appropriate geospatial data, uh, especially those that are scaled down to the specific localities, and institutional capacity to translate this data into policies and plans. In response to this, the Climate Change Commission has initiated in 2016 the development of the Communities for Resilience, or CORE, Modular Training Manuals, a set of standard training modules on methods and tools for science-based local development planning. Together with the DILG, or the Department of Interior and Local Government and other partners, CCC has, training, has been training faculty members from higher education institutions on the use of these modules to assist LGUs in developing their own climate-enhanced development plans. We also note another problem in terms of weak institutional capacity at the national level in supporting climate change-related efforts. So for instance, uh, just to exemplify this point, while there are already several laws that respond directly or indirectly to the demands of climate change, the enforcement is limited by weak institutional arrangements. This is most evident in the field of water resource management, for example. Despite the creation of the Water Code and the National Water Resources Board, or the NWRB, to coordinate the activities within the water resource management sector, there remains to be a highly fragmented institutional framework arising from the multiplicity of organizations that exist and operate within that sector. In fact, there are more than 30 government instrumentalities that differ in terms of hierarchy of coverage at the national, subnational, local, and institutional sectors represented and functions, whether this is concerning research, planning, policy development, sector coordination, regulation, financing, infrastructure development, operation, and data monitoring. The management of the water resources is thus subject to the intricacy of the dynamics between these agencies, where in many occasions the areas of operations overlap, and where contention is thus found, the roles and delineation of responsibilities tend to remain undefined. This impedes the successful and efficient adoption of any legislative agenda and government plans, as inaction and conflict interests arise in several situations. For instance, just to illustrate my point, while the Laguna Lake Development Authority is responsible for the protection and development of Laguna Lake, regulation of other sources of pollutants such as household industrial waste fall under the mandate of LGUs or other agencies. The same goes for the operation and maintenance of flood management and drainage structures in large flood-prone areas where there is unclear delineation of responsibilities between the national and local governments. Those are examples of major issues and challenges. I can discuss more on this uh, through LinkedIn or other channels, or perhaps through my email if people are interested. But for now, uh, given the interest of time, I think I will end my presentation at this point. Thank you. Uh, if, our, if there are any questions, feel free to direct them to our host, Lisa. Please uh, comment them on the box provided, and she will sort out these questions. Thanks. Yes, again, thank you so much. 
Miss Karen, for sharing with us your expertise. Truly addressing the environmental problems should be more than doing. Planning is an equally important part to ensure that every step we take for our planet does not go to waste. Again, if you have any questions or feedback, just type them down in the comments section below. And I'm sure that we can further deepen our discussion with some questions from our audience today. And you guys can still send again your questions in the comments section below. So, Ms. Karen, you mentioned key milestones in terms of the UNFCCC negotiations. So, what happened next after the adoption of the Paris Agreement? Okay, so after the Paris Agreement, there had been several conference of parties uh, that happened already because, again, this happens annually. So what happened, uh, for instance, in 2018, uh, there was a new uh, report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change warning us of the devastating consequences, including stronger storms and dangerous heat waves if the average global temperature rises 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels in project. And they also projected that it could reach that level by as early as 2030. However, despite this report, countries did not agree to have stronger targets. They do, however, largely settle on the rules for implementing the Paris Agreement, covering questions such as how countries should report their emissions. They did not agree, however, on the rules for carbon trading and they decided to push that discussion to 2019. Now, uh, coming to 2019, the UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez organized the UN Climate Action Summit for World Leaders in New York. Countries were mandated by the Paris Agreement to submit revised NDCs by the following year, 2020. So the meeting was a chance for leaders to share their ideas. But then the leaders of the world's top carbon-emitting countries, such as U.S. and China do not, uh, did not attend. At the summit, Gutierrez asked the countries to submit plans to cut GHG emissions by 45% by 2030 and to reach carbon neutrality by 2050. Later in that same year, there was opportunity lost in Madrid. Uh, the conference of parties at that time was marked by a lack of progress on major climate change issues, despite a year of dire warnings from scientists, record dead heat waves, and worldwide protests demanding action. Negotiators were unable to finalize rules for a global carbon market, and they disagreed over whether to compensate developing countries devastated by effects of climate change, uh, mostly as a result of their own emissions. The conferences final declaration also did not explicitly call on countries to increase their climate pledges made under the Paris Agreement. And so the Secretary General Gutierrez described the talks as a lost opportunity. Then finally, we move to 2020. As some of you may know, uh, the talks were postponed because of the COVID-19 pandemic. The 26th Conference of Parties was originally scheduled for November 2020, and it was postponed until 2021 because of the pandemic. For this COP, countries are expected to strengthen their emissions reduction goals set under the Paris Agreement. And, uh, however, uh, it, it should also be known that emissions fell worldwide as many countries implemented nationwide shutdowns that drastically slow down economic activity and as a result emissions as well. But experts predict that the, that the reductions will last with governments under pressure to boost output and disregard the environment to save their struggling economies once the pandemic is under control. So that's it in terms of what happened after the Paris Agreement. Yes, thank we you for that. expecting more in the next mm -hmm. conference. Uh, we we have a question here from Facebook. Uh, first of all, she says, thank you for the talk. And her question is, may I ask, which organizations can be local or international are actively working with NDC projects, projects implementation in the Philippines? And how has the private sector received the NDC? 
there actually is a number of private uh, sector organizations, um, mostly uh, in terms of development agencies that have been helping the national government uh, in terms of concretizing the goals of the Paris Agreement. Um, as you may know, the NDC itself is just really an outcome document. It does not really lay out the guidelines on how the country can go about achieving its targets under the agreement. And so what the Climate Change Commission has been doing as of today is to come up with the guidelines, especially in terms of climate finance and implementing the Paris Agreement so that it can achieve the targets by 2030. Let me just go over. I think I have a document here regarding which private uh, entities have been helping out. So for instance, we have here uh, UNFAO, we also have here UNDP or the United Nations Development Program. And there also have been um, in, uh, expressions of interest from other development agencies and even multilateral banks. Actually, what we have been doing as a, nas as a national uh, government was to, because previously I was with uh, the National Economic and Development Authority, was to canvas how each um, multilateral organization, development agency, international organization, can help in implementing the NDCs. So we have been gathering inputs from the Asian Development Bank, the European Union, the Food and Agriculture Organization, even the Republic of France, AFD, or the agents, uh, Agency France de Development, and then the Federal Republic of Germany through the IKI initiative, their International Climate Initiative rather. We also have here um, the Institute for Climate and Sustainable Cities, the International Labor Organization, and again, the United Nations Development Program, World Bank, World Resources Institute, and Worldwide Fund for Nature. Um, they have provided inputs on where they can help in terms of, let's say, capacity building, technical assistance, um, knowledge dissemination, etc. Okay, uh, we have another question here. Uh, from Facebook, it says, you mentioned about weak institutional capacities as one of the challenges in attaining the NDC. Do you have any suggestions on how the government can harmonize the roles of the concerned agencies? Ah, yes. It depends actually on the sector. Because for one, for instance, let's say on the water resource management, there had been talks to actually consolidate uh, the powers and mandates in the water resource management sector into one regulating entity. And then on the coastal and marine sector, on the other hand, there also had been talks to have a department of fisheries and aquatic resources that can resolve the conflicts among the different instrumentalities that are operating within the sector. All of these are being discussed at the legislative level, and we hope we can resume these talks in the next sessions. Yes, uh, another question here from Facebook. What is the status of the country's climate finance readiness given the NDC? Ah, okay, all right. I just read the question. Um, there are many things to consider in terms of climate finance readiness. For instance, just talking about the Green Climate Fund alone, because it was only recently that the Green Climate Fund entered into the climate finance landscape. Uh, I was involved in that uh, back in 2018. And as part of our preparations, we had to develop uh, a country program 
uh, indicating the programs and projects that should be in the lineup and should be prioritized by the Green Climate Fund in terms of providing project development support or in the actual project implementation. Uh, it also provides uh, the same program, the Green Climate Fund Readiness Program, also uh, gave assistance in terms of how uh, the Philippines can better tap or make better project proposals for submission to the GCF or the Green Climate Fund. And we also are actually experiencing the same um, challenges with other global trust funds that are hard to access because the preference lies in multilateral organizations that would be the conduit of the funds instead of local actors or banks. And we are trying to veer away from that scenario because as much as um, multilateral banks have the fiduciary standards and also the track record to implement and channel, to implement the projects and channel funds, uh, it doesn't really give that much to the countries in terms of country ownership they don't have as much control over the projects as they would like. Okay, again, if you have more questions or feedbacks, just type them down in the comment section below. Ms. Karen, despite the destructive impacts of climate change, why do you think there are people who, refuses, who refuse to accept that climate change is a reality? And how do we educate them with a reality check? Um, <clears throat> regarding this, um, behavioral, change, behavioral change is rather a difficult topic. Um, we did a study before, and usually the ones who are more likely to accept that climate change is indeed a reality, and it has dangerous impacts on the environment and the people environment, are the people who are at the forefront of receiving this impact. So for instance, uh, coastal the people living in coastal communities are more prone to knowing the impacts of climate change. They are the first to see the impacts of sea level rise, the impacts of typhoons, etc., of soil erosion. And even those, um, not just in coastal communities, but those living in vulnerable areas, those with uh, steeping, uh, those living in, let's say, um, in areas where there is steep soil. So those are the ones that are easy to change um, in terms of behavioral behavioral practices and our goal is to target those that are not easy, whose behavioral change is not easy to modify and this can be done through um, reforms in terms of the education so this is something that the department of education can lead in and actually the climate change commission can lead in this aspect as well but the only problem is the climate change commission does not have regional presence and so it, the, the burden of education really falls on the Department of Education. Okay. Uh, we have another question here. Uh, she says, first of all, we learned a lot uh, from Ms. Karen. She says, thank you for the webinar. And her question is, do you know projects that our president has been supporting regarding climate change? Uh, okay. Actually, the president is actually at the lead of the Climate Change Commission, but recently he has delegated this task to the Department of Finance Secretary. And he has been supporting many projects uh, by the Climate Change Commission. Um, one of the more recent initiatives by the finance secretary was to focus on plastic marine litter reduction. Because as we know, uh, the Philippines is one of the top emitters of marine litter. In fact, Pasig River, if I recall right, is the fourth largest polluting river by volume alone. And this is um, this has complica complications or rather implication in terms of emissions because um, the backbone of plastics are petrochemicals. And while the Philippines does not really generate much in terms of plastic waste, uh, it actually falls behind its neighbors by around at least one fifth or one third. Uh, it's um, 
it performance wise again while the waste production is low our recycling is not developed so what happens is that there is much leakage into water bodies unlike in other countries where they do develop high amount of waste but they repurpose, they recover, and they recycle this waste into other meaningful activities or high-end uses. Okay, there you go. Thank you so much, Ms. Karen. But before we end, would you like to promote anything to our audience? Or do you have any upcoming talks or organizations you wish us to join? By all means, go ahead. Okay. Uh, thanks for the opportunity, Isabel. Uh, actually, as secret Secretary Coordinator of the Partnerships in Environmental Management of the Seas of East Asia, we do have what we call the East Asian Seas Congress 2021, or in short, EAS Congress, as many of you may already know. Uh, this Congress is actually a triennial event that we do. The last one was in 2018, and the next one, it's actually in December, but because of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, we will be making this virtual instead of a face-to-face -face event that happens in different host countries per year. And also because of the COVID-19 pandemic, we will be decongesting the event to make it scattered. Um, events will be happening as early as June and will culminate in December in the ministerial forum. Um, our, the launch of our events will happen on June 8, actually, on the World Oceans Day. And we invite everyone to come along. We have this Ocean Roundtable Dialogue that invites senior level um, officials from different countries, from China, Cambodia, Indonesia, Japan, South Korea, Singapore, Indonesia, and Vietnam to discuss the challenges and opportunities of advancing blue economy under the new normal. Uh, they will also be presenting policy recommendations that can uh, serve as inputs for developing the ministerial declaration of the partnership. This, um, the more details can be seen uh, in our Facebook webpage. Um, just proceed to PEMSI, that's capital P, Papa, Echo, Mama, Shera, Echo, Alpha. Thank you. There you go. For everyone who attended this webinar, here's some good news. You can reward yourself with a digital certificate for your attendance. Just head on to our website at www.sma.ph or click on the link that we posted in the comments section below. Make your own account and navigate to the title of the webinar that you joined today. Before this webinar comes to a close, I would like to invite everyone who wants to learn more and increase their knowledge and skills, just visit our website at www.sma.ph. We offer a wide range of masterclass courses, those of which you enroll in, based on whatever feeds your interest or possibly build for your career. Thank you so much again, Ms. Karen C., for providing us a better perspective on where the Philippines stand in its responsibility to save our planet. We are hopeful that the Philippines stays true to its promise and encourages participation from all Filipinos. And for all of us, it's about time that we include our dear planet in our plans. Once again, thank you everyone for joining us today with the Philippines' first NDC to the Paris Climate Agreement with Karen PC. We hope that you learned a lot from us in the insightful talk. Again, I'm Isabel Veracruz and good evening to everyone.